Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to She Said, She Said, a show of rock and roll comparisons and contrasts. I am Lena Stagg, the author of the Recipe Records Cookbook Series, which is a collection of four innovative rock and roll cookbooks that incorporate rock history, facts, trivia, and photos with clever recipes themed for music genres and bands. The most recent book being the Rolling Scones. Let's spend a bite together. A clever look at the history, music, and cuisine associated with, of course, the Rolling Stones. You can check it out and learn more about my books at lanastag.com. And while you're there, sign up for my free newsletter and blog. Hey guys, I'm Jude Sutherland Kessler, Lena's trusty sidekick here on She Said, She Said. I'm the author of the John Lennon series, and for those of you who don't know, it is a nine-volume, proposed nine-volume. We're up to volume four. We already started work on volume number five, nine-volume historical narrative chronicling the life of John Lennon. And if you're going to talk about John Lennon, of course, you're going to talk about his mates, the Beatles. Um, three of the books are on sale right now. The fourth one, yay, 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 is coming out at the Chicago Fest for Beatles fans. In fact, you are cordially invited to be at the book release party. It's going to be on Saturday morning, 11 August at 10.15 a.m. I know you're, you're going, oh my gosh, that's early, but we're going to have coffee and sweet rolls and juice and all the things to wake you up. The party's going to be just outside the main stage in the Hyatt Regency O'Hare. So in the hallway outside that main stage, the tables are going to be set up, refreshments, door prizes, and you will have the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to have your copy of the book signed by the cover artist, Rand Kessler, the illustrator, Susan Durbacher, who's flying from New England to be there just for that morning, for that party, and, of course, by me. So three of the people involved, and I'm going to try to twist John Trusty's arm. He partied with the Beatles in Key West, and he might sign his chapter as well, so we'll keep our fingers crossed. But it's going to be a great event. So to learn more, go to johnlennonseries.com for all the info on all the books, including the new one, my free newsletter, and, of course, info about the party. Oh, and it's going to be such a wonderful party. I cannot wait. It is going to be fabulous. So we hope to see everybody there. And today we're in party mode as well because Jude and I are kicking off our second big debate here on She Said, She Said. Last year, you may remember, we had a five-part series where we debated who is really the greatest rock and roll band of all time, the Stones or the Beatles. And today we're kicking off our next round of lively discussions answering that all-important question, which Beatles movie was and is the best, A Hard Day's Night or Help? And over the next three months, I'll be the spokesperson for the Academy Award-winning film, A Hard Day's Night. 
And I'm going to be the happy spokesperson for the beloved fan favorite. Help, (laughs) I need somebody, help. (laughs) (laughs) And we are so, so happy today because we have here to set the stage for us and fill us in on how these two films came to be and which talented principal players had a hand in creating these legendary movies. He is the backbone of the Fest for Beatles fans in, held in Chicago and New York, a man who works hand-in-hand with Mark and Carol Lapidos to make sure that all of the presentations, events, and the guests all come together. And not only that, guys, but he's also the executive editor for one of the most respected journals concerning the Beatles in the world, Beatle Fan Magazine. And he is a respected Beatles historian. In fact, like Lena and myself, he was selected as one of the noted contributors to Bruce Spicer's latest book, The Beatles and Sgt. Pepper, A Fan's Perspective. But most importantly, he's the author of what I consider to be the top-notch historical account of those exciting days that led up to the British invasion. It's called Changing Times, 101 Days That Shaped a Generation. And I love this book because it carefully examines Mm -hmm. those 101 days just prior to that fateful weekend of 7 February 1964 when the Beatles land in New York City and then are on the Ed Sullivan Show and change our lives forever. Now, guys, so many myths have grown up around the Beatles that the further we get away from the event, the more things are cloudy. I heard a quote this weekend on the Lord of the Rings. It says, some of the things that should not have been forgotten were lost. History became legend. Legend became myth. Well, in Changing Times, our guest today dispels the myths that surround those 101 days, myths such as the legend that the Beatles became popular simply because President Kennedy was assassinated in late 1963, throwing America into a pall of sorrow. And so we needed the happy-go-lucky Beatles to bring us out of that. But in Changing Times, you're going to find out it's not that simplistic. You'll find out what really happened and what led to the rise, not only of the Mersey Beat, but what led to the conquest of America by the Beatles. So needless to say, Lena and I are extremely honored to have with us today that respected author, editor of Beatle Fan Magazine, radio show host for years, and most of all, our friend, Al Sussman. So Al, welcome to She Said, She Said. Hi, Jude. How are you? Lena, nice talking with you after after a, a long time. And hello there, everybody. We're we so are so to delighted you, to have you here, Al. Oh, it's great. It's great to be here. Uh, Jude, as a matter of fact, I just was looking at the calendar and realized that we're now only about four and a half weeks away from the Chicago Fest for Beatles fans. Woohoo! I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> that is great. That is great. So, Al, as Jude, as Jude said earlier, over the next few weeks, I'll be stating the case for a hard day's night, insisting, of course, mm-hmm. that it's the better of the, the first two Beatles films. 
but I'm guessing that in your heart of hearts, you agree with me in that regard. So Hmm. would you set the stage for us, if you don't mind, and tell us how the first Beatles United Artists movie came to be and who was instrumental in bringing this remarkable concept to fruition? Absolutely. Uh, What you can do is is go back to the fall of 1963, uh, and around the same time that Sid Bernstein um, committed to having uh, the Beatles play Carnegie Hall, United Artists um, made the commitment to, even though the Beatles had no track record in America whatsoever, Uh, United Artists made the commitment to this band that it had three number one singles in England plus a number one album. And uh, they figured, well, let's let's see if we can, uh, you know, make a make a quickie, uh, you know, black and white film for about uh, about half a million dollars. And so they uh, they signed them up um, on on the Beatles end of it, the, uh, the, the Beatles and manager Brian Epstein's uh, end of it, uh, they definitely did not want uh, to make the, the, like, the, the typical Elvis film of that time, which were getting right. worse and worse, or the terminally pleasant Cliff Richard films. <laughs> or the, uh, the 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 rock exploitation films, which you know now are kind of interesting because you get to see a lot of acts that you know you never really got to see either in person or on TV. Uh, but the 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 films themselves were so terrible. There was basically no plot at all, just basically a bunch of uh, you know songs. And uh, mm-hmm. and virtually no plot, so they didn't want any anything like that. So um, even with you know a bargain basement budget of about a half a million dollars, they did uh, they did put put the movie in the hands of some some pretty good talent. Walter Shenton mm-hmm. uh, produced the film. Uh, Richard Lester who had a uh, actually both, both Walter Shenson and uh, Richard Lester had, both had pretty sterling track records and uh, Richard Lester would produce the film uh, excuse me would uh, direct the film and uh, Alan Owen who was a Liverpudlian would uh, uh, would do the the screenplay and to kind of facilitate that uh, Alan Owen uh, traveled with the Beatles during their fall tour of the UK and got to got to know their their speech patterns and all and was able to fashion uh, fashion a screenplay out of that and uh, so they so they obviously did not want to uh, fall into the trap of making the you know the the typical the typical rock uh, rock film. On UA's side, basically they wanted they wanted a soundtrack that they could sell, and basically mm-hmm. to to get it out as quickly as possible uh, because they because they knew that the that the that you know that the bubble was going to burst any second. Of course, when they committed to the film, sure. uh, at least in America, there was no bubble yet. But they, <laughs> right but once. 
But once I want to hold your hand took off, they knew that it they knew that at some point this this beetle craze would just peter out. They figure, you know, <laughs> before the end of the the end of the year it would be gone. Absolutely. So that's why they wanted to get get the soundtrack out as quickly as possible. As a matter of fact, I graduated uh from eighth grade in June <laughs> of sixty four. And uh wow. you know, and as often happens, you know, you get a little bit of money for uh for graduation mm-hmm. from the family. And so that that Monday, which I think was June fifteenth, I went to a uh a department store across the street from where I lived and there was seemingly out of nowhere because I don't I don't remember even hearing any of it on the radio was the United Artists soundtrack album from Hard Day's Night. And this is um, nearly two months before, uh, before the film was actually released, wow. in, at least in the, U, in the U.S., about a month before it was uh, released mm-hmm. in Britain and, and about two months before it was released here. So they wanted to get this out as quickly as possible. And, um, and so it was, uh, you know, that was, that was their, their main, uh, their main aim to, uh, to, you know, make the, make their money and, <laughs> you know, and get this, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, get a hit album before, uh, before the bubble burst. Sure. And, sure. As, and, so, as, and uh-huh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, you go ahead, Al. <laughs> oh, Okay. Um, just a, just a couple of other things. Um, um, uh, my my other my uh, my other experience with a hard day's night was that um, now, Lena, I know you're too young. Uh, Jude, I don't know if you ever <laughs> saw a Beatles concert. Unfortunately, but, no. My parents would no. not let me go because. <laughs> They were the Beatles were hoodlums, but they were fine with dropping me off at a Jimi Hendrix concert on Chaperone. <laughs> I learned a lot at that Jimi Hendrix concert. I learned a lot. I'll bet. I'll bet. But like like a lot of males, um, I never saw the Beatles live. But that first time that I saw Hard Day's Night, that was the closest that I ever got to the atmosphere of a Beatles concert. Because I saw it at a theater in Hackensack, New Jersey, uh, with a big, long line on a hot August um, uh, day. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the line took forever to get in the theater. I, had to, I ended up having to sit up in the, um, uh, in the balcony. Wow. And it was, and they uh, it was a double feature. They were playing Elvis Presley's "Follow That Dream," <laughs> and and you should have heard the booze at the end of that film. And really, but then, I don't think I've ever heard then, of that movie. Oh yeah, it was from about 1962. <laughs> and then and then right as when the credits for that ended, see the United Artists logo. And then this flash, and then you see the first that first scene of the Beatles, you know, running up the street, and I've never heard such noise in a movie. Ah. 
<laughs> until about until about a minute later, when the the little scene where Paul and Wilfred Bramble lower their newspapers, yeah, I mm-hmm. I thought the roof was going to come off. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I heard none of the dialogue. You know, all that great <laughs> Alan Owen dialogue. Uh, I heard mm-hmm. I didn't hear any of it on that first uh, that first try. Uh, but it was, uh, like I said, it was, it was basically <laughs> the closest that I ever got to, uh, um, to, you know, witnessing Beatlemania up, uh, up close and personal. Oh, God. <laughs> well, Al, tell us, what do, you, what do you think the Beatles felt about the finished product, about the movie? Did they like the movie? Did they feel like it was um, a well-respected piece of work? Well, they, you know, they they liked the the as a as a piece of film. They definitely were, you know, very happy with it because they, um, you know, they they respected Walter Shenson and respected uh, Richard Lester, and um, uh, they were, eh, you know, they were okay with Alan Owen's. Uh, um, screenplay, um, but they, I, I, especially in the case of um, of George and and John, I think they both were unhappy with the the fact that the that the film basically cemented images mm-hmm. of the four of them. You know, brainy, rebellious John. Um, you know, uh, quiet, puckish George. Mm-hmm. Hugh Paul, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 unfortunately Ringo, um, even though he got the best reviews of anybody because of his almost Chaplin-esque performance uh, in mm-hmm. in the film, uh, the image that it pro- that it projected of him as this as this put upon, uh, you know, uh, not terribly bright drummer, uh, was you know, not at all accurate. And, and, right. and of course that would be, that would be exacerbated by later on by the, uh, the Beatles cartoon show, mm-hmm. which, you know, which painted him as being, you know, this simpleton, you know, <laughs> so they, uh, so they, right. in, in that respect, they, you know, they were not real happy with the, uh, with at least with the images. I, I think Paul was pretty much okay. <laughs> With uh, with the image, but because uh, he was able to get away with the fact that that he that he can't act. <laughs> <laughs> he because just looks as, cute. As we, yeah, exactly. You know, it's just uh, it's unfortunate that uh, that in the case of both a hard day's night and help, there were solo scenes filmed with Paul, and his acting was so horrible in both yeah. of them that they were <laughs> that they were cut from the film. Yep. Yep. <laughs> okay, Al. So finally, the soundtrack. You would think mm-hmm. that Jude would have selected A Hard Day's Night as her favorite Beatles film, since the soundtrack is really almost a Lennon solo LP. So much of it is is John. But Al, give us your elevator pitch for the Hard Day's Night LP in in just a couple of minutes. What tell us what the pros and the cons are. Well, it's not completely a John solo album because of the fact that you have 
you have the first of the great Paul McCartney love songs mm-hmm. on there in And I Love Her. And uh, and also you've got uh, you've got If I Fell, which I you know is largely a uh, John written song, but uh, yeah. the you know the <laughs> the harmonies by the two of them are just so wonderful. Um, uh, and it's uh, interestingly one of the uh, one of the tracks on the United Artists soundtrack was not in the film, and that's I'll Cry Instead. Right. Uh, which again shows you how quickly they, they you know, how quickly they wanted to get this album out, that they hadn't even you know set it in stone as to you know if, whether all of these songs were actually going to be in the film. So, you know that's that that was a problem, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, but actually as far as the music it's the the music itself it's uh, uh, a lot of um, uh, a lot of Young um, young Beatle fans, young male Beatle fans. In fact, especially ones who uh, were becoming musicians, like uh, like Billy Joel, like Stephen Van Zandt of the E Street Band. They consider a Hard Day's Night actually the British version of you know the full the full album as their their favorite Beatles album. Wow! And certainly the the half of it that's on. The American soundtrack uh, certainly shows just how good an album uh, it is. I mean, when you when you've got when you when you've got the title song and you've got uh, um, uh, I should have known better and you've got and I love her and you've got uh, if I fell uh, and you've got can't find me love, which had already been uh, a number one single. Uh, that's that's quite a collection. Plus, also, and this is a guilty pleasure of mine. I mean, I'm a um, uh, I, I own the Holly Ridge Strings uh, uh, best of the Beatles songbooks, and that's a very much a guilty pleasure of mine that I still pop out every once in a while. And yeah. and so the the George the George Martin instrumentals on uh, on the the American soundtrack, uh, I. I really love, uh, very much so, and of course, and especially of course, uh, Ringo's theme, the instrumental version of This Boy, which became a medium-sized hit um, here in the U.S. in uh, the uh, during the summer of '64, yeah. uh, and is still kind of a uh, a much loved piece of uh, of the, you know kind of the the nostalgia of 1964 mm-hmm. for a lot of, uh, you know, original, original Beatle fans. So it was, uh, it's, uh, uh, as a, uh, as a soundtrack album, it was, uh, it was a very, very good one. Well, you know, I agree with everything that you said. And it's funny because, um, writing should have known better, which is 1964. And Lena did the major part, probably hundreds of hours of editing on the book. So we've been kind of living, a hard day's night with the boys and now we're poised to begin 65 in the next book and go through that and you know the thing Al is that they've had this really really tough year in 64 and now guess what they're getting ready to do it all over again they find out there's already another United Artists film slated they're already at the end of 64 scheduled to begin it 
uh, Richard Lester is going to be at the helm once more, but this time it's going to be this this riotous, in color James Bond spoof. And so it's going to be another film, and of course, in 65, another world tour and another North American tour. And you almost can title 1965 the word another. But there are some differences, some subtle differences and some important differences and help. So fill in the gaps for us. How did this repeat performance come to be? And what's the scoop or the griff, as we say in Liverpool? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, for one thing, um, um, uh, the, the, the second film got double the budget. Of wow. um, mm-hmm. uh, of a hard day's night, um, whereas the you know the budget for a hard day's night was basically half a million dollars. Uh, the budget for the second film, um, which in in its original stages was called Eight Arms to Hold You, mm-hmm. some strange reason, <laughs> and its uh, its its budget was uh, was basically about a million dollars. Plus, it was going to be in color, mm. and and right from the very beginning, uh, they, uh, they it was being promoted as you know definitely not a hard day's night. Walter Shenson very early on called it a mad zany comedy thriller, right. and Richard Lester mm. um, uh, described it as a comic strip adventure. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so it was uh, it was definitely not going to be you know a hard day's night part two, uh, and they they surrounded um, uh, I you know I, I actually forgot to mention some of the cast from a hard day's night, uh, people like Victor Spinetti, uh, who who played the uh, the, the the TV director, and right. uh, and people like uh, like Anna Quayle. And um, uh, and of course Wilfred Bramble uh, and uh, Kenneth Bray, who in mm-hmm. un, who Joey just recently lost, who in an, an uncredited role uh, had that great role as the the ad executive who tries to browbeat uh, George. Um, yeah. But uh, but in the for the second film. They basically surrounded the Beatles with, uh, with again, some really uh, some heavyweight talent. Uh, mm-hmm. Leo McKern, um, uh, Roy Kinnear, who had been a regular on uh, That Was the Week That Was, the great right. satire ser- political satire series uh, in England mm-hmm. during 1963. Uh, Victor Spinetti returned uh, to play Professor Foote this Kind of James Bond esque, um, um, you know, mad scientist, and uh, mm-hmm. and Eleanor Braun, who was right. the uh, the the mysterious female, and in fact, uh, mm-hmm. Jude, inquiring minds want to know: Were Eleanor Braun and John Lennon a surreptitious couple during that time? <laughs> well. It will all be revealed in bit, book number five, Shades of Life. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, there's so, so many, Al. They talk about so many. And, uh, for, you know, everyone from Maureen Cleave <laughs> to Ronnie Spector, who says mm-hmm. absolutely no way knew. So we'll have to see what we find out about Eleanor. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. 
<laughs> but it uh, it was it was definitely a very it was a different a different type of film. Uh, I think in a way, uh, the Beatles felt almost um, almost overshadowed by the the talent of the the rest of the cast, and plus they were let's say not quite as involved uh, because well as as John Lennon put it, they were basically smoking pot for breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and doing uh, and doing the whole movie with uh, you know with uh, with red eyes. Yeah. So it was a, so it was definitely a different a different experience. It was, and you know, you think about what they had just been through. I mean, it, no wonder they're smoking pot for breakfast. They've been through a year in which not only has John put out his own book and moved into a house and remodeled the house, but they've done um, a hard day's filmed a hard day's night. They've done this world mm-hmm. tour. Then the North American tour, many live performances in England during the summer. They had that long, long UK tour. They do two LPs and promote them and a million zillion interviews for TV and radio and God knows what else. And now in 65, it's lather, rinse, repeat. They're doing the same thing again. So it pretty much goes without saying that they weren't so enthusiastic about filming help. I mean, it, it, they don't go into it with the zest that they had for a hard day's night, do they? No, no, definitely not. Definitely not. I mean, they. I, I think in one respect, they liked the fact that it wasn't going to be the same, you know, the same kind of film, that it was going to be a little different but uh and and also they uh, they did uh they did kind of arrange it so that uh whereas hard day's night was completely done in london uh with the you know the with double the budget they were able to uh to request that that they uh that they film in uh quote unquote exotic locales <laughs> and um uh, and uh, you know and, you know first of all going to in february in the middle of February, going to the Bahamas to film, and uh, and in fact, well, not only not only as uh, you know an escape from uh, from the British winter, but also one of their accountants um, uh, decided, oh, this would make a good tax dodge. Exactly. But uh, I think we'd probably have to talk with our uh, our our tax attorney friend, Mr. Spicer, about that. And uh, <laughs> but also. But also after after that they went to uh, went to the Swiss Alps to film, mm-hmm. and then to the um, uh, Salisbury Plain mm-hmm. to to film the um, you know a lot of the exteriors. So, Which is not so uh, exotic. So, Look like, looks like they're about to absolutely freeze to death. You can actually see the teeth chattering. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. You can you can see the wind and all. Yeah. It was brutal. We're going to cut off in a second on our live show, but everyone hang on because we have more coming on the archive show. So if you're you're losing us live, make sure that you hear the end in archive because we want to ask Al about the soundtrack. So, I mean, this I love, love, love the help soundtrack. And, you know, as they say, in Hard Day's Night, we're getting a clue to the new direction because John's always been autobiographical from day one, but now he's really becoming autobiographical, and uh, certainly we hear that in Hide Your Love Away. And then George has I Need You, which I, I it's one of my favorite George Harrison songs. So what about this Help soundtrack? Give us the good, bad, and ugly. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It was uh, – uh, it's it it is a a clue to the the new the new direction because I mean for one thing once once they got rid of the um, uh, eight arms to hold you uh, title and decided mm-hmm. to call it help uh, that gave John the chance to to write what he felt was an autobiographical song mm-hmm. uh, plus as, as well uh, you've got to hide hide your love away showed a lot of the influence of, uh, of Bob Dylan, but also you've got, you've got the night before, which is just, you know, classic McCartney, uh, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, and George Harrison's I need you, which is, uh, which I, sh- I share my love of that song with, uh, with you, Jude. And, yeah. and also one of the uh, classic pieces of kind of Beatles pop, uh, you're going to lose that girl. And uh, and not only that, but also again uh, the um, uh, the U.S. soundtrack, although this time on Capitol, um, uh, basically about half of the album was um, instrumental music from the film, which interestingly um, was not by George Martin this time, but by Ken Thorne. Right uh, and uh, and uh, in fact Ken Womack in his in his biography of uh, the first volume of his uh, biography of George Martin mentions that it was because of the fact that uh, that Richard Lester and George Martin had uh, had clashed uh, during the uh, during the the filming of the hard day's uh, well, uh, more of the recording sessions uh, <laughs> than the filming of a hard day's night that um, that in uh, in 65 for help, uh, Richard Lester decided to have um, his friend Ken Thorne do the, uh, do the incidental music, which, hmm. um, uh, which adorns at least part, you know, a good half of the, the U.S. soundtrack album. And yeah. it's kind of interesting, especially since there's uh, uh, the, uh, the track the Another Hard Day's Night has a sitar in there. And <laughs> which uh, hmm. you know, talk about, you know, early clues to the next to the new direction, right? Yeah. So it was. Uh, so it's a, uh, it, uh, you know, uh, again the, you know, the UK album, which uh, would have, you know, all Beatles music, uh, would be even more of a clue to the hmm. new direction, especially on uh, side two. But the uh, the American soundtrack uh, does definitely stand uh, stand very nicely on its own, no question about it, it. It does, and I know there's so much that you could say. In fact, I mean, we're going to do a whole show uh, on the two soundtracks in August. We're going to compare and contrast them and play selections from each album and talk about the creation. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, man, we could go on and on. And then another whole show could be done comparing and contrasting the capital version with the EMI version. So uh, there, there are so many facets to the music in the two films, and they are definitely landmark LPs. No question about it. No question. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, and, it, and both of them actually show the, the incredible leaps that they were making musically in a very short time. I think people, people. I think especially younger people who, you know, didn't live through, you know, the story, you know, in real time. I think they they really don't get how quickly 
they made all of these changes, you know, because yeah. when they recorded when they recorded the most of what was on the uh, uh, the Help soundtrack, uh, particularly, uh, it was basically two years, almost exactly two years, since they had recorded their first album, and there's <laughs> pretty much no comparison <laughs> musically, right. really, right. Right. Well, we are so looking forward to um, the remaining shows that we have, and we really appreciate that all of the information that you've shared with our listeners and uh, educated us as well. And so exciting to to relive your memory of when you went to see Hard Day's Night. I love that story, Al. Um, in September, we're going to focus on the core concept or theme, if you will, for each film while touching on the symbolism that there is in each movie. And that will be our program in September. And then in October, we're going to consider the famous wry and comedic lines from A Hard Day's Night and Help as we compare the most memorable moments from these great, great, great Beatles classics and try to decide, even if it's possible, which film is really the best. So, Al, thank you bunches and bunches for helping us kick things off today and giving the listeners uh, the history of these films and introducing them to the cast and crew. I mean, I know 90% or maybe 95% of our listening audience is made of people who've seen the movie hundreds of times, but I still don't think we always Mm -hmm. know all of the backstories and the history and really Mm -hmm. appreciate it. And I want to take this opportunity to thank you as well for all the hours and creativity and hard work that you're giving to getting ready for the Chicago Fest for Beatles fans. Like you said, four and a half weeks away, August 10th through the 12th mm-hmm. at the Hyatt Regency O'Hare. Yeah, just another, uh, like I said, another four and a half weeks away. And it should be uh, should be a, a lot of fun. And uh, uh, look at, especially looking forward to your uh, your, your launch party. I am too. I can't wait. We're trying to get Lena to get over there. So let's that all everybody write in and tell her, Lena, be at the party. <laughs> well, Absolutely. it might be. I might be on the magical mystery tour. We'll see. <laughs> so, um, but um, are there any other? Um, who are the main um, attractions at the fest this year? I'll tell our listeners. Uh, who, who you guys are expecting? Well, this year, uh, Jack Douglas, who produced uh, the Double Fantasy and Milk and Honey albums, will will be there. Uh, also, Jeff Emmerich, mm. who was the engineer mm. on uh, the Beatles recordings from, uh, let's see, I guess from Rubber Soul, um, right up and th- right up through Abbey Road. Uh, will be there. At least he'll be there on Sunday. Also, Peter Asher uh, playing with Jeremy Clyde. So it's Peter and Jeremy to to make things even more confusing for people who who will be confused. (laughs) Peter and Gordon and Chad and Jeremy. And, and, uh, you know, uh, 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 little Nicola, the uh, the little girl who was um, uh, on on John's lap in... uh, um, oh. In Magical Mystery Tour, Magical. Uh, cool. she'll be there. Yeah, hmm. and, and um, also yep. Leslie Cavendish, uh, 
who was their um, their hairstylist for a time. A hairdresser. Back back awesome. during those sure. years. You know, and, and plus just... a whole slew. Mm-hmm. And a whole slew of authors as well. That is just fabulous, and I know everyone's going to have the best time. The, the fest is always a great, great, great weekend. And speaking of fun, guys, join us on Monday, July 23rd, for a radio do-over. Uh, in May, you may recall that our host, Doug Thompson, wasn't able to get into the show due to technical difficulties. And um, John, uh, Doug was a highly respected radio personality, and he -hmm. has these fabulous radio tributes to John Lennon. And we are going to be chatting again with Doug on July 23rd. We'll play clips from those radio shows and pause as we remember John. And so until then, our thanks once again to Al Sussman and to all of you for being with us today. Here's to food for thought, food for the soul, food for the love of rock and roll. Draw and shine on. Not just anybody. You know I need someone. Now I find the gentle mind, I'll open up the door.